like an hour later, Elon DMs me and says, I agree with your thesis, would love to meet and talk about it. So I said, no, the cynical view is like, um, when people are like, oh yeah, there's a lot of work to be done. It's like, no, 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 all of the work is left to be done. Do I want to run like an asphalt company? Like, fuck yeah. Anything I do, we have to be able to make money before we have a product. Like it's just a prerequisite. You have to be attracted to the business model or like some variant of like the type of business because like the exact way that you monetize that, who your exact buyer is going to be, the way that you talk about the problem will probably change like six or eight times in the first year. Really critically looking at every year of your life in terms of like, am I sort of like moving the world in the right direction? This is Audience of One and I'm your host, Spencer Keir. My guest today is Chris Bakke. Chris is a serial entrepreneur, most recently selling his company Lasky to Elon Musk and X. We talk about satire and memes, X, authenticity, hiring in the labor marketplace, how Lasky got acquired, criteria for finding problems to solve, passion and pivoting and creating value. Please enjoy. So I feel like most people will know you because of your your Twitter account. Uh, I want to mm -hmm. get into some of kind of like the serial entrepreneur stuff, but wanted to start with that because it's probably more familiar territory for people. One of the things that is fascinating to me about you is how you kind of toe this line between these different personas. First is uh, the the shit poster, um, the the tech satire, and the other is this serial entrepreneur and CEO. Um, obviously in real life, these things aren't as black and white as that. Uh, but, but online it, it can come across that way. How do you kind of navigate and blend these two identities and is it difficult or tiresome at all? Yeah, I, I, I started posting, uh, pretty seriously on Twitter in the end of 2020. Um, so I was, you know, Kind of post acquisition from uh, my first company and was at the acquirer and it was like COVID and and there wasn't any fun stuff to do it felt like outside of the world so all of my normal energy in like traveling uh, just went into writing shitty tweets uh, and then you know it it grew like not so quickly like I think a lot of what I was doing was sort of my advice to people when they want to get started with content which is just dive in by replying to other people, like coming up with your own, you know, topical tweets every day is actually kind of hard, especially if you've never done it. But we all have an opinion, we can all chime in on something that somebody else is saying. So for six months, kind of end of 2020 into 2021, 90% of what I was doing on Twitter was just replying to a bunch of people, mostly in tech and VC who I admired. Uh, and then over time, like probably six, nine months later, I, I started to create some of my own tweets. And then from there, you know, as my own following grew from a few hundred to a couple thousand to tens of thousands, um, uh, you know, we, we had started a, a business around that time that I was also starting to tweet. And I noticed that there was this kind of like correlation in terms of, you know, I would write these tweets. Some of them would do really well. Others would totally flop. But regardless, we were getting leads for you know, customers, and we were getting leads from hires, uh, a bunch of the best hires we made were, were from Twitter. Um, and so I was like, okay, I never imagined that this would be uh, this kind of like weird crossover thing. Like I always assumed I would just post things that I found funny, maybe other people would find them funny. But you know, by mid 2021, I was like, oh, using Twitter and using content in general as like a primary growth driver for business is super important. Um, and it became like very critical to the growth of, of Lasky, which was our last company, which happy to talk about. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that the, like the, the persona thing is, is funny because, 
hilariously, like when, when big VCs see me out in public, it's like, oh man, I'm a huge fan of your work. I know they're not talking about the companies that I've built and that's totally fine. Like it doesn't, doesn't bug me at all. I, I love content. I love creating on, on Twitter now X. Um, I love posting stuff on LinkedIn. I like creating across a lot of different platforms. I think it's super fun. Um, and, and so I, I think like the, the multiple persona thing was, always like, I think I got really lucky that I found a thing that I just enjoy doing. I would enjoy it if I didn't work at X, I would enjoy it if I wasn't getting paid to do it. Um, and, and I would do it if I wasn't able to drive a lot of revenue to my companies because of it. Um, it's just stuff that like, I think like I would rather just sit on Twitter and post a bunch of content for an hour than watch TV. So that's just like my form of entertainment. Uh, it's arguably a sick form of entertainment, but that's just, uh, something that keeps me going. So, yeah. And you're providing entertainment for, uh, at this point, almost actually over the course of this episode, you might cross like 200,000 followers. Uh, so yeah, you're, we'll you're providing uh, entertainment for a lot of other people as well. Um, why is it that you think that comedy, and I mean, it is niche comedy, you're talking about tech primarily, but that, that doesn't just stay entertainment. Like it, it crosses over into, as you alluded to, I think you, you tweeted this out, you generated like two or $3 million in founder led sales for Lasky, uh, either directly or indirectly as a result of this content work. Um, why is it that kind of comedy can convert into real sales as opposed to it being kind of this more, uh, this more direct type of sales that you see a lot of Twitter, a lot on Twitter with like the, these are the 10 best growth hacks or, uh, here, here's how to improve your content. Um, yeah. Why, why does it transition? Well, uh, I mean, I, I think a lot of it is uh, is honesty. Like there's, you know, I, I don't, I'm certainly not the, the, the funniest person even in tech, but like, I think that there's just a lot of honesty behind the stuff that I say, even if I say it in a very satirical or joking kind of way. And then, so I think that that's the first piece is like, there's so much bullshit in sales. There's so much noise in sales that I think one of the things that you have to do is, is stand out, um, from the 400th cold email that a founder is going to receive or that a PM or a recruiter or whoever you're selling to is going to receive that week. Um, and so I think that there is this sort of, um, I mean, I found this with other people. Like I've invested in a lot of people's companies who are shit posters and who write sort of satirical stuff on, on X or other platforms. And, um, there is that sort of like inherent self-awareness that often comes with it too. Like, uh, I realize that there's a lot of problems with the tech industry, right? There's, there's a lot of like, like, so joking about diversity or joking about pay or joking about, um, some of these fucking delusional CEOs of, of small companies is hilarious. Like everybody in tech is talking about these issues behind closed doors. Right. Um, and so some of that is just having the, the freedom, uh, of running my own company or, having enough money or whatever it is to like be able to say these things and, and to like a tiny, tiny extent be like, I don't really care what happens. Like you can buy my products. You cannot buy my products. Um, and so there, there is that element of it of just like, um, I don't think any of these are novel concepts. Like the, the stuff that I post about is super niche and I'm constantly surprised that like I can joke about total compensation at Netflix or RSUs at meta and like get thousands and thousands of likes. But you know, the thing about my content is I have 250,000 followers across LinkedIn and X. Um, that's like how many people work at Google. So like, right. I feel like it's super niche, but also there's like massive runway in terms of 
the number of people who can, you know, have still like never seen one of my tweets who work in tech and have like massive influence. Um, and then the, the other piece of it as related to sales is I think, you know, when you're writing a joke or when you're posting a tweet or when you're building in public, it's the same people responding to all of that content. Like I, I love serious business breakdowns. I love, you know, Naval's motivational bullshit quotes just as much right. as the next guy. But like, it's me, the founder of a company or like a buyer at a company, whether I'm liking a meme, whether I'm liking your sort of, you know, build in public type stuff, whether I'm liking your motivational stuff. And so I, I think the surprise is always like, oh, you guys were able to sign up thousands and thousands and thousands of leads from your account. And those were product managers at Meta and senior recruiters at AWS and like real people in real businesses who had real budget. And so attracting them, like sort of getting their attention is the hardest part of this whole game. If you have a product or you have a service that is, um, you know, going to be helpful to them in terms of saving them time or, or helping them make more hires in our case, um, that conversion funnel became, I think, supernatural. And, you know, you forget when you're in a demo, how you actually scheduled that demo. Did they reach out to me? Did I come in through Twitter? Did I come in through some other channel? Um, and so I think that that was just a big part of it is like, there's real people in tech reading this content, um, getting them as buyers is, is actually easier than you think if you're able to just like stay consistent at content, I think regardless of the type of content that you're creating, which for me is mostly, you know, meme, satire, stuff like that. What is it you feel like you uniquely understand about this intersection of tech and memes that maybe others don't? And uh, I say uniquely because you said that you feel like there's other funnier people in tech and yet. I would say, especially after you, uh, the, the run you had with the open AI weekend, uh, which was incredibly impressive. I think you probably got a lot of your, your growth this year as a result of that. Um, it's clear that you're doing something better than most other people. So is there anything you feel like you particularly understand about either this niche or this format that others don't? Well, I think a lot, like everything that I write comes from a very real place. Like I don't, I don't speak a lot about blockchain companies, even though I think that they're hilarious because I've never worked in one. So I think a lot of what you've seen across, you know, finance and sports and now tech is like, there's always been jokes. There's always been this like niche weird industry in real estate, in finance, in golf, in technology of like people that are making jokes and have sort of become these like jester, you know, accounts that are commentating on the industry. Um, it, it really helps to have gone through it in a lot of different ways. I've invested in companies. I've bootstrapped companies. I've raised venture. I've sold companies. I've been a part of companies that have had massive success, massive failure. Uh, I've hired people. I've fired people. I've hired great leaders. I've hired the worst leaders in the world. Like I've, I've, it's not that I've done it at all. It's just like, I've dabbled enough in each of these things. Right. Um, like layoffs are never funny. And so there's certain things that I just avoid altogether that it's like, maybe some master of comedy can make these things really funny, but I, there's like certain things that I'm not trying to like, you know, risk my career, or like purposefully get canceled over. But the vast majority, like 90% of just like the day to day in tech is actually quite funny. And I, I mean, it's like, I'm, I'm not even close to the first person who's, who's noticed this. I mean, you have stuff like, um, office space and Silicon Valley and like all of these like mega hit movies and shows that have like right. kind of poked at this like weird niche of like white collar humor workaholics and they've all done it in very different ways but I think you can take some of those same things about like uh, 
HR or DEI in tech or, you know, raising money from like the dumber, dumbest venture capitalists in the world. And you can make any of those things super funny, but you have to speak the terminology. Like this is one of the things that I think is becoming hard about, um, you know, producing content is that so much of it is, is kind of shuttled through these like ghostwriters and content mills. There's very little reward for actually creating unique content. Everybody on the internet across all platforms are just remixing and curating content because coming up with your own meme is super hard. Uh, going to Reddit and going to like r slash memes and then sorting by top and ripping that meme and putting a different caption on it on X and having it go viral is an order of magnitude easier. So that's what everybody's doing. Um, and so I, I do try to uh, be like a player in this ecosystem of like, remixing a bunch of content that is very topical, but also trying very hard to just like come up with my own angles to this stuff. Um, and there's no like reward outside of like, it does make me feel better that I'm not one of these accounts that's just like completely ripping memes from everybody else on the internet. There's some like intellectual honesty that I appreciate about myself yeah. that I'm able to do that. But like 50% of my content's just like remixed from like Trung or Alex Cohen or Jack Rains or like somebody else that I follow. And then they're doing the same with my content and that's totally fine. Um, so it's like, there's, there's no rules, right? There's no rules on X. There never have been. Um, I, I, I joke that like a guy who, who sells cars owns this website. Like it's not a very serious place, right? <laughs> like, you know, the owner of Tesla bought X or Twitter and now X. And so it's like, we're here to have fun. We're here to laugh. Um, we're occasionally here to get, you know, insightful commentary on different things. But I think that there's um, there's a long way to go around like comedy and tech. And, and I actually think that the best people around comedy and tech was probably, I've said this many times, this like Michael Arrington era of tech crunch from, you know, like 2008 to like 2012, there was like very funny, insightful stuff that was being said about, you know, early stage startups and about funding announcements and about VCs and about VC drama. And so I think, all my account is, is a hope to bring like 5% of that stuff like back into our day-to-day -day life. Why do you think it is that we've lost that? And, and is there, I, I think there's something unique about comedy in the way, and, and you mentioned Jack Rains, we talked about him briefly at the beginning of the episode. Uh, he and I talked about this on my last episode, but there's something unique to comedy in that it kind of cuts through and allows you to get a message across in a way that people might otherwise be offended if you're talking really directly about something. Um, what, what is it you feel like we, we've kind of lost and we maybe need to use comedy to revisit or get more honest and authentic about? And I guess in terms of the reception of that, do you feel like people are kind of a little more sensitive to, to the messages you're trying to get across or uh, is, am I just reading into kind of current internet culture too much? Uh, I, I mean, yeah, maybe, maybe to a certain extent, like, I, I think that there, the thing is, is it's funny. I, I think one of the honest reasons that I chose a more comedic route versus a more direct route in the early days, people are always like, oh, it must be really hard running this account. You must get so many like hateful DMs. I don't at all. Funny enough, when I post serious stuff of like, this is the exact thing that worked for me right. at my last company. People like that didn't work for me. You're an idiot. And it's like, okay, dude, like, you know, so it's like, I almost picked the, the comedic, like satirical route because you can avoid some of the criticism while still getting like the 80, 20 of the point across. Like, it's amazing if you look at these, you know, build in public, uh, figures 
many of whom are bullshit and a ton of which are, are super legit. Like I talked to a lot of these people as, as just like friends or people that I've met through, through Twitter. And it's incredible. Like the amount of you, you go through their comments on like something that they've launched and people are super mean. You, you go through their like DMS and, and people say really mean shit. It's like, I'm not trying to necessarily sign up for that. It doesn't bother me when it does happen because it's inevitable. If you have a big post, you're going to get a lot of people who disagree or dissent with it. Um, but I think one one thing on that question is is you tend to I think get a lot more hate for more of the like here's some real tactical advice here's some build in public stuff and so I do think that uh, comedy can actually be a bit of a shield to like abstract you for like say something that you honestly believe without saying here's something that I believe like right. I think most companies that have like a thing that I could say right most companies that have a metaverse team. In the year 2024, everybody that works on that metaverse team is grifting the company, <laughs> right? And I could say that and I would hurt the feelings of a bunch of people, many of whom are great people who are like, you know, working at like metaverse at KitKat or like I'm on like the VR team at John Deere or something. <laughs> but if I make a joke about saying like, I'm the VP of metaverse at John Deere and I make $8 million a year and right. like, here's all the dumb shit that I've done this week. People are like, ha ha, that's funny. It's the same point. It's just said and sort of like I'm sort of masking it with like 90% of people are going to read this and know right away that I'm not actually the VP of Metaverse at John Deere. But I can sort of get the same point across without having to uh, maybe like poke the bear as much as I really want to deep inside. Yeah, that's the beauty of it and also why it's so critically important to keep uh kind of dialogue a, a little bit more open than you can have when we're all talking very directly to one another and end up talking past each other and getting yeah. folks angry. Um, just one kind of final question around kind of content creation. Uh, and then we'll start getting into kind of more tech and, and founder type topics. Um, you have used content uh, kind of jointly as entertainment, but also as we, as we mentioned to like drive sales. Is there any part of you that has any interest in becoming like a quote unquote full time content creator? Uh, I know I know you've dabbled with, you know, a newsletter. You had a, po a podcast with Alex Cohen and, and Michael Girdley, um, but have shelved those. Do you do you see content in the future for you just always being either entertainment or helping drive like some business you're working on? Or would you want to just pursue content uh, for content's sake? Yeah, I, uh, I have two young kids now and, and with kids, it's always like the thing that people in tech who are engineers and who are, uh, in product or who have real jobs, I was criticized is like, oh, it's terrible that, you know, all these young kids want to become YouTubers when they grow up. Um, maybe Palmer, that's Palmer like Lucky my midlife. A, an interview yeah. about this the other day. Yeah, exactly. Like it's highly contentious, right? Like I, I think I saw his thing. It's like, it's, it's, it, you know, it just like, it irks the core of some of these really intense people who, you know, are building like drone companies and, and sending rockets to, to Mars and who are building, you know, autonomous vehicles and some of these like very hard tech problems, glad that they exist. And it's very easy to poke fun at content creation. Um, and, and I think I'm kind of in the same vein. Like I, I don't think that I could go um, full content creation with it. But I do think that if you look at um, what, uh, you know, Dave Ramsey has done and Gary Vaynerchuk have done, I mean, these people have built <clears throat> like 
not small, not medium, massive businesses around content, which I think is super interesting and appealing to me. Um, and so, you know, for the time being, really enjoy what I'm, I'm doing now, which is, is building, you know, not only writing on X, but also helping to, to build uh, X and, and build out a lot of the new features there. Like that sort of split, I think is super rewarding. But um, I, I think just growing content in whatever direction that you pick, whether that's posting on, on X or posting on LinkedIn or being a Reddit or God help you or, you know, an Instagram influencer or a blogger or a vlogger, like any of these things. Um, extremely helpful for distribution in whatever you choose to do with your life. Like I, I like to think like I could go tomorrow and decide I'm going to become a potter on Etsy and I wouldn't be starting from scratch. Like I would have a newsletter following. I would have, you know, lots of followers across multiple platforms, like sort of whatever the, the next thing is, um, it becomes uh, exponentially easier. I think with each year that you're like keeping your toe kind of in the content waters to get users, get interest, get distribution, get press, whatever the thing that you're trying to accomplish, um, like go to market and distribution for anything for SaaS, for consumer products, for, for, um, so much has become so challenging that I, I think it will, you know, at least in this current wave, like in, until something disastrous happens with like content as a genre, um, super valuable. And, and I just enjoy it too. Like I'm, I'm also at a point now where a lot of the stuff I'm doing is not necessarily for money. Um, I could certainly be probably making more money, uh, investing my dollars right now on YouTube versus X as a platform, but I don't see myself as a YouTuber. Like I have a, a, a face for radio, as they say. So it's just like, I, I, I'm not trying to become like the next Mr. Beast. I'm not trying to become like a, you know, incredible podcaster. Um, I do really enjoy newsletter stuff. I enjoy long form content. I haven't had a ton of time to do that this year, but it's hopefully something I get back to uh, next year. You mentioned your your work at X. Uh, so you're in this unique position where you are just a creator on X, uh, but you relatively recently got acquired by mm -hmm. by Elon and X. Um, I guess first, just to kind of set the stage, maybe you could give just a little bit of background on what Lasky was or is, uh, and then talk about how that X deal came together. I think it was particularly interesting for me because as I had mentioned before the episode, I'd kind of identified you back when I had my old podcast as somebody I wanted to talk to. And then lo and behold, uh, you're like the first acquisition post post Elon's acquisition, which I thought was fascinating. Um, so yeah, maybe you can just touch on what Lasky was and then th this X acquisition and maybe now what you're kind of doing to integrate Lasky in. Yeah. Uh, so, so, you know, the background there is we started, uh, my co-founder, Daniel O'Shea, um, who's, uh, a great content, uh, writer as well, but not quite as prolific because he has to do like the hard part, which is all of the like deep technical engineering where I just get to like grow the things that he builds. Um, he and I have worked together for 10 years. Um, a lot of our sort of core engineering team has worked with us. Uh, this is our fifth company together, technically. Uh, we all worked at a company back in 2012, 2013. Um, that company was acquired. We started our, our first company together in 2015. We sold that company to Indeed. We worked at Indeed together. We started Lasky together and now, now all at X together. Um, so it's been really fun. And, and Lasky was started as a business in 2020. Um, it's a recruiting automation company. Uh, and so the, the, the thing that we had learned was, you know, already by 2020, if you looked at the job of a recruiter, it's a lot of these manual tasks just happening over and over and over. Um, so our, our first company in the recruiting space was targeted toward <laughs> recruiting and filling a lot of these 
um, more entry level white collar roles. So things like, you know, customer support and BPO roles and entry level marketers and things like that. Um, and so in, in sort of going up the funnel, we realized that, uh, you know, there's this massive war in 2020 over talent, especially amongst like media, finance, tech companies. And um, the recruiters behind the scenes, they're all doing the same manual tasks, which is like search for machine learning engineer on LinkedIn. You know, that returns like X thousand profiles. Y thousand of those have like open to work or some signal on their profile that leads us to believe, okay, they've been in their job for a while. They might be up for a change. We now then write like cold email copy to them. We try to convince them to jump on the phone with us. Like it's this, it's this very tedious process. And it's kind of amazing. If you look at these companies that are building super interesting stuff, um, whether that's at Meta or OpenAI or, you know, what we're doing at XAI and at X, it's just like, no matter how big, how small, it could be a public company, it could be a two-person, you know, private company working out of a bedroom. Um, the, the means of recruiting really have not kind of fundamentally changed for the internet era. And so Lasky was, was um, built to really conquer this on the, on the B2B side and try to make the job of a recruiter a lot more streamlined. Like, you should be taking all of this uh, very straightforward, very basic work around like searching for candidates in a database, emailing those candidates, trying to get them interested. Like if you didn't have to do all of that work and you could just spend 40 hours a week only talking to awesome candidates, like that's what you signed up to do. Very few people sign up to be a recruiter to be like, I want to spend all day in the weeds running like complex searches in LinkedIn. It's like, no, I want to like speak to people get them hired. And that's explicitly what you're paid to do. Mm -hmm. um, and so we were just automating a bunch of that um, uh, kind of context, uh, contact curation, um, content generation for the outreach. We were, we were manually handling a lot of the outreach. And then sort of what we were building on the back end for, for candidates was a matchmaking platform. So the idea of similarly, if you're looking for a new job, having to go to Indeed or LinkedIn and search machine learning engineer in San Francisco and then wait for all the results to come and then scroll through like literally thousands of results was absurd. We should know enough information about who you are, what types of jobs you want, where you're based, whether you prefer, you know, co-located work on site or whether you prefer remote work, exactly what type of salary you've earned in the past, how much of a salary bump you're expecting, you know, whether you're only looking at series A companies or only public companies, like you have this massive list of information that we collect about candidates. And then as recruiters are doing this outreach, we're sort of uh, automatically surfacing super interesting candidates to companies and super interesting companies to candidates. So the idea is that job search becomes and feels a lot more like Tinder than it does LinkedIn or Indeed or a job board, um, where highly relevant jobs are sort of, you know, uh, matched to you. Um, so, you know, a big part of that um, story was that we were not only uh, helping companies discover talent through traditional means like LinkedIn and job boards, we were also using GitHub profiles, Twitter profiles at the time, um, and, and sort of aggregating all of this like social graph type stuff, especially on like engineering talent or design talent or product talent, and then surfacing that to employers. That's sort of how we like where we started and, and sort of how we got into this like Twitter ecosystem as a company by like 2022. And then how did the kind of deal come together? How, uh, I guess, who contacted who first and then uh, take us from that kind of point of first contact to where you're at today with actually jobs being kind of native within X? Yeah, it turns out the most valuable tweet I've ever written in my life um, 
was written in early uh, early this year, I guess. And my point, which we were now sort of proving out, which has been fun. My point to uh, just throw it out in the universe was that Twitter should take them a take themselves more seriously as a B two B platform. Like so many sales and so many so much activity was happening here, and and more specifically that Twitter should take itself more seriously as a recruiting platform and as a real threat to LinkedIn and Indeed and some of these companies. And the thesis was super simple that I outlined. I think I published this tweet in like January or February of this year. And it was, if you look at Twitter historically, pre-acquisition, they were doing you know like three or $4 billion in advertising revenue, but they had like 490 million monthly active users. LinkedIn had significantly fewer you know, monthly active users. It was like 360 million, but they're doing $15 billion of revenue. So um, there is like a 4X revenue opportunity at that time from getting into recruiting stuff, from like getting out of being a traditional ads business and getting into helping recruiters and helping salespeople identify the right contacts at each company and get in front of them in, in terms of like DMs or in front of their inbox. Um, so the tweet didn't, do particularly well. Like it was one of those rare, rare posts that I do that was a very serious post. Um, <laughs> and it was not targeted at anyone. I did not tag Elon. I didn't, um, you know, expect him to respond. And like an hour later, uh, Elon DMs me and says, I agree with your thesis. Um, would love to meet and talk about it. So I said, no, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I said, <laughs> I was like, yeah, sure. Uh, sounds great. Um, and so he said, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, it was like, you know, give me a call on Saturday. There was no specific time and he gave me his phone number. And so I called him at like 2 PM on a Saturday and he answered right away. And he's like, Hey, Chris, um, which was like very bizarre. Um, and so he just asked me, he's like, what are you guys working on? I agree with your thesis, but like, tell me specifically what you would do to like fix this problem and to like help X get into job search. Um, so we ended up talking for, I don't know, like 15 or 20 minutes. Um, I think the next day, like Sunday, he was in Palo Alto. So on Monday, I like met with him. Uh, my co-founder flew out from Austin. I'm, I'm in the Bay Area. My co-founder was in Austin. He flew out and both met Elon together um, at this like dinner thing. And the three of us chatted for like three and a half hours. Um, and we were literally like demoing him on our product. We were demoing him on like what recruiters do on LinkedIn today. Um, we were just sort of showing here's the before, here's the after, and here's where I think X's audience could plug into this and, and become hyper valuable, both in terms of something that's like value add to people that are looking for a job as just like a differentiated platform. I think people are so over traditional job boards. Um, but also valuable to like an enterprise value perspective where employers um, are looking for alternatives. Like job search in the US is a duopoly. Uh, LinkedIn does $15 billion in revenue. Indeed does $10 billion in revenue. Um, and then there's this massive long tail that starts with ZipRecruiter who does a billion dollars in revenue. But it's like the second place player is over 10 times as big as the third place player. And it just keeps kind of like exponentially going down from there. Um, and so there was this, the, the challenge is often chicken or egg in marketplaces. Like how do you build either enough jobs to get the audience interested or enough audience to sort of bring them jobs? Um, Twitter has always had this business model problem, uh, which I think still largely exists today that we're working to fix, but it is that you have a highly engaged audience, right? 
and it has been very hard to sell them stuff. Uh, LinkedIn was the opposite. LinkedIn had this hyper valuable audience that was not engaged. And they did this genius thing of like adding a content feed to it seven or eight years ago. Um, because in absence of that, what you have is a product where um, people only use it once every three years. This is Indeed's problem. Indeed has no hooks to keep people retained on the platform. So it's very hard to cross sell them stuff. Like you get a ton of money once every three years when a new user comes and is looking for a job. Um, and the reason that that works for LinkedIn or that, that that model works for Indeed and doesn't work for LinkedIn, by the way, not that you asked, but now I'm going into like product nerd Please. stuff, is that um, uh, on Indeed, it's mostly blue collar work and LinkedIn is mostly white collar work. So the advantage that LinkedIn has, which I think a lot of people that start these like white collar or um, kind of like job boards for tech people don't understand, is that an engineer moves jobs every like two to six years. The person that works at Taco Bell or drives a truck or is an entry-level nurse, those people actually move jobs a ton. Like whatever exists in the tech industry and finance and media around job hopping is a non-issue with most like entry to mid-level blue-collar work. And so you have people coming back and back and back to Indeed, and it's super easy to monetize them. LinkedIn has now solved this problem of like, we have this high value thing that people want to do once every three years, but the way that we keep them engaged and sell them $7 billion a year of ads in that content timeline is by getting them interested in our content. It's like, we already have more users at X. We had the content timeline. Now we have the opposite problem that LinkedIn had, which is like how to get more serious about the, the actual business side of offering recruiting solutions and sales solutions and advertising solutions at work. Um, so that was sort of the opportunity at hand. And it was one of those things where, um, you know, our company was going to get purchased for a great outcome. Uh, my co-founder and I would be able to report directly to Elon. Uh, we'd be the first acquisition. And I think most importantly, we looked at this very similar to how we looked at our last acquisition where we sold to Indeed, which was around, um, Building something to hundreds of millions of users is just like an awesome opportunity. Very, very few people get that opportunity. Um, and as much as I love being a founder, I think the opportunity to take something that we were building and plug it into an audience of 540 million people was super exciting. And so that's sort of how the deal came together. But it started with a tweet, led to a DM, led to a series of dinners and meetings. And then within three months, we were acquired and had joined Twitter. And then within like a month of that, the company was rebranded to X. And so our app was rebranded from Lasky to X hiring. Maybe the coolest part about this is your story is a meta example of the, the networking and kind of uh, hiring and acquisition value exchange that's happening on the platform that isn't being captured, right? Like you tweeted this, Elon responded to you and that led to an acquisition. Uh, so it's a funny kickoff to the story. And I have one of those stories myself. Um, I, as a result of, of my last podcast, or I guess indirect, indirectly, uh, I joined the founding team of a company through a a cold DM as well. So I think like there absolutely is so much latent value in this network. Um, I think you've taken the obvious first step in, in making kind of job listings and job search more more native within X, uh, but there's still a lot more to be done there. Can you give us any kind of glimpse into what you think the the remaining big pieces or problems are or, or areas of value capture? 
Yeah. So the 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 initial challenge is definitely. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a perception issue. That's a lot of what X faces today is a perception issue of like. Um, What's funny about hiring is it's less of a perception issue than some things. Like some things that we're working on around like payments will be fundamentally different from the way that the platform really works today. One nice thing about jobs was that if you went on Twitter 10 years ago and you searched for like the handle at life at Google is another good is a good one or like Boeing careers or FedEx jobs. There were all of these handles, most of which were run by like the official corporate social media team at Google or at Boeing or at, you know, whatever company. Um, Disney was always an example that I would give. So I'm mentally blocking them out uh, <laughs> to, to not give them as an example. Um, hey, who shall not uh, be but, named? Yeah, yeah. So, so like you have these, these corporate handles that are run by the social media team or by the recruiting team. And a lot of these handles, like if you looked at the Fortune 500, I forget what it was, but like 60% had dedicated hiring, jobs, recruiting, life at type handles at the time of our acquisition. So this wasn't really new behavior. To your point, it, it really was around structure and value capture and like making a thing that was kind of okay, really good for everyone. Like the reason that the at life at Google handle performed really well was that it was Google. Like, <laughs> you know, Google could go on any social media platform and right. create a handle and people are going to be attracted to it. The much more interesting problem that I think indeed did a great job at solving was how do you serve this to small and medium sized businesses? Um, many of whom not only like don't have a corporate handle on Twitter, like the management team doesn't use Twitter, right? And so maybe like individual recruiters do, but like your average like shipping and logistics company, your average healthcare company, your you know Series A tech company that just raised a fifteen million dollars Series A, like how do those companies with no name brand recognition actually build enough of a following to then be able to tweet jobs at those people and get those people interested? Um, so we had to like fundamentally change the the way that we thought about this. Of recruiting has happened, uh, especially within tech and media, and to a certain extent like finance and and VC for a very long time. Um, so a, we wanted to start with those industries where it was already natural. Um, so like getting, um, Stripe or ramp or, um, Brex or, you know, one of these companies to list jobs was going to be much easier than getting a bunch of like healthcare companies to list jobs. Right. So we kind of started with where we were already strong. Um, so a lot of the concentration in this first six months since our acquisition has been around tech media finance. Um, and then the second thing is just convincing those companies to give us jobs. Um, we, we have this product that's great, which is called verified orgs. Um, it gets you a lot of things, but one of the things that it gets you is the ability to actually manage jobs, um, directly, you know, in sort of your account and then promote those jobs to followers, but also promote them to non-followers. Um, so sort of like building the rails of how that would work and what the value proposition would be, um, was really like the first three months. And then the most recent three months has just been growing jobs on platform. Um, so today, if you go to uh, x.com slash jobs in web, um, you can see this maybe by the time this comes out, it'll be available iOS as well. Um, but you can like go to any number of companies. Um, you know, Tesla is like a really easy example because it's one of Elon's companies. And you can see all of their available jobs right from the Tesla profile. 
But now if you go to x.com slash jobs, you can also see uh, it's about 600,000 other jobs um, that companies have posted onto X, which is super exciting. So like for most, what I say most uh, like tech job searches, you can search for remote sales jobs and see hundreds of examples of companies hiring or, um, you know, engineering jobs in New York and see thousands of companies hiring for that. And so the, the sort of, you know, I think next couple of years for this product is basically around continuing to get to parity with LinkedIn and indeed just in terms of count of jobs. We already have the audience. We're now growing the, the count of jobs from like zero to a million this year. Um, and then the, the, the sort of next piece of that is like doing what we did at Lasky, which is the matchmaking component. Um, right now, we sort of have artificially created this job board to get companies interested. But the much more interesting thing is um, using inference-based data um, about our users to get really good at programmatically putting jobs in front of them. So in the same way that it's like, hey, we know that you just, you can't get enough fight videos. Like if we say, if a new fight video account is created on Twitter, you're our guys, we're going to put it in your feed. It's the same thing for jobs, right? So um, you look at user behavior and you go, um, the vast majority of Twitter users or X users don't have sort of interesting um, bio information in their like short form bio. So the first thing that we did is we added a product called Expanded Bios, which is available to premium users where they can give us a lot more of that like structured information about who they are, what they like, um, what they're looking for in terms of work, what they've worked on in the past. Um, and that's been great. That launched about a month and a half ago. But much more importantly is hey, you have no info in your X bio. Um, you don't tell us who you are. You may not even have like a real profile picture. Um, you may be one of those degenerates with like an NFT as your profile picture, in fact. And so we really have no idea who you are. You don't use your real name, um, but you're like some incredible, um, uh, you know, like uh, smart contracts developer and you have all this experience like in blockchain and, and within Web3 but we would never know that because it's not tied to your profile. But if you follow the Coinbase account and you follow the OpenSea account and you follow all these like relevant accounts and then you're interacting with other people that have NFT profiles and you're commenting on like Solidity contracts and React and like some of these like, you know, languages and frameworks that are relevant to developers and you're following some of those developer accounts, like we can start to infer with very limited information, sort of, um, you know, some, some of that, uh, those basics. Um, so that hasn't, hasn't rolled out yet and then sort of the, but it will soon. And then sort of that tied with the information that you give us around specific parameters that you explicitly set around, like, this is the salary range that I want on the back end of your profile. We now have the jobs. We now have engaged users. Um, we can start, uh, you know, sort of like putting those pieces together and recommending awesome jobs directly in the timeline. Um, at the point that you tell us that you're ready to hire, like th that's the other careful piece here. I think with all of these products as we, right. you know, work to become the everything app is like, we know not everybody's going to want to find a job through X and that's fine. We know not everybody's going to want to pay their friends through X and that's fine. Not everybody wants to take advantage of live streaming or spaces. Like some people 10 years from now will still just be here to like yell at each other about politics. And that's completely fine. Um, and so we, we have to be careful. I think like, our design team is small but mighty. And, and I think one of the really amazing things is like how you pack all of this stuff in um, and kind of make it a place where you can do lots of things, but we know not every user will take advantage of all that stuff. So um, we're, we're kind of keeping it quiet. We're keeping it mostly under wraps for now, but that's sort of where we're, where we're heading uh, over the next year with it. Right. It seems so 
obvious, maybe uh, simple, but hard uh, in hindsight, like there, there's so much wealth of activity, your, your knowledge and interests and social graphs all kind of collide here. Um, so it, it'll be awesome to see this continue to get built out and become an even improved kind of automated or kind of like pushed, uh, pushed to you and personalized experience around hiring. Um, stepping back maybe from X for a second, although you, you might decide to, to build this in there depending on, uh, you know, how long you, you want to build it out there for, um, going back maybe to your work with interviewed, uh, and for those who aren't familiar, maybe you could give like 30 seconds on that when I, when I hand over the mic to you. Um, but one of the, the interesting things and important things I think you did was you brought the, what, one of the biggest, uh, problems with hiring in my opinion, and it's been uh, a, a historical problem is that the, the real work you do in the office or now from home is not really reflective of the interview process. Uh, mm -hmm. I sit in a room for 30, 60 minutes, have a conversation, but I don't really get to sample that kind of work. And so interviewed kind of brought this a little bit closer. Um, but I think there's still a large gap here in terms of what that interview and hiring and application process looks like versus what you do day to day. So I'd be curious if you just have any high level thoughts on how we bring those two things closer together and make that application interview environment more reflective of the the real work environment yeah um yeah it's a great question i mean i, I think interviewed for quick context was a uh i guess is now with an indeed it's a it's a non-technical assessment platform so the best way to describe that is we started the company in 2015 at the time when codility and hacker rank and all these technical hiring platforms were emerging and there's this thing in like ideating on startup ideas that I, I think is is a helpful thing that's been around, I think, like in in you know Silicon Valley or tech world for a long time, which is um, what's like what's the secret that everybody is talking about that you have a thesis on, but that like nobody's talking about the way to do that for like X industry, like this sort of like remixed um, like answer to a secret or like response to a problem that everybody's sort of whispering about. Um, and so the, the, the assessment, building an assessment company was super interesting because, um, as you kind of alluded to, this was definitely nothing new for a ton of industries. Um, so if you look at like, this is going to go very nerdy very quickly, but if you look at like the history of assessments um, and like using assessments to hire, a lot of the sort of modern stuff came out of uh, what they call industrial organizational psychology uh, around World War II. Um, which was like, hey, we're at war. Um, we have all these like 18 to 24 year olds coming in and we need to decide like very quickly who should be on the front line with a rifle, who should be in the war room strategizing, who should be like behind the typewriter, like cranking out memos. Like you don't want to put the guy who types like seven words per minute in front of a typewriter. You don't want to put like the the dumbest person in the room, like in the general's room. And so um and so a lot of these like basic tests emerged during this time that had been like developed by psychologists for, you know, hundreds of years before in some cases. But um, these these basic tests, like it would be like the army in World War II would use like a very simple typing test. And they would give it to everybody. They would use a very simple cognitive ability test and give it to everybody. They had these tests that like um, worked around like grit, which is the super hard thing to define. But if you look at what startups want, it's like, we want people that can work fast, are smart, are gritty, et cetera. So 
there was this funny overlap where like, this was very obvious that you should be using some form of assessments by 2015 to hire developers, whether that's like a, a, a really manual take-home test that you had developed. Um, this also existed in, in private equity and consulting forever, like almost dating back to Cold War days. Like all these McKinsey's of the world, Bain's of the world had been using take-home tests or in-person presentations, like very hard to get a consulting job or an advertising job without some sort of like a pitch to the firm or a pitch to the partners to prove that you weren't totally full of shit. And so what was funny was like when we, from working at our own startups, you know, before 2015, it was like, you know, this incredibly rigorous task to get hired as a developer at our company. And if you were breathing and you lived in San Francisco, like you could get hired as a salesperson at our company. And it was like, why is this? Like, it's not like sales is a lesser job or a less important job. Um, arguably, like by this time, it was emerging that like bringing things to market was equally important, if not more important than like building the product product itself. Um, and so it was this really simple idea of like, okay, like assessing enterprise sales reps for Yelp is probably going to be hard. Um, but if we start like a couple levels below that, if you go like way down the sort of um, education and and sort of skills stack to what what a lot of workers in, in the world across the world are doing around like data entry and basic like chat customer support, um, we started there and it was essentially like, let's build tests, let's build assessments that are structured. Um, so you're, you're sending the same test to everybody. There's no unfairness around hiring practices. Um, uh, that became super important because this theme of like um, uh, sort of like reducing bias in hiring was like really starting to come out as this like major wave in 2015, 2016 that we were able to ride. Um, and then like you could even you could send these tests anonymously, which actually proved to be super important. Like it was helping um, young people get hired onto teams that mostly hired old people or like women hired onto teams that were mostly hiring like white guys before. And so it was just like, sort of by distilling it down to just like the test results um, in, in a interview process, you're able to eliminate like a ton of biases. And so we were able to sell this software into a ton of companies, big and small, but overall, uh, just on hiring in general, like our team uh, at Lasky didn't use assessments. Like we weren't using the Indeed assessments that we had built because we were mostly hiring engineers and product managers and designers and salespeople and stuff. Um, but we, we all, for, I mean, for 12 years, we've used like some form of a take-home test for every role. It's painful to create them, especially as the company grew from like five people to 10 people, to 30 people, to 50 people. We were having to create like recruiter assessments and all these kind of like niche things that would get used one or two times, account manager assessments. Um, but it really helped us like building out a basic assessment, which I think sounds overwhelming, but it really just gets down to think about you know fast forward to month three whatever this role is what is that person doing like, what do they show up and do on right. a monday if it's customer support they're answering tickets they're in zendesk they're doing all the stuff if they're in sales they're like running demos they're prospecting etc so just take that day and give it to a candidate early in the process pay them for it um, so that you eliminate any sort of concerns around like, oh, you're using my best ideas for your company. It's like, no, we, don't, we really don't give a shit about that. We're just trying to hire good people who know what they're doing. Um, and so it's this like relatively easy thing to build out and to think about. And then just have some sort of like standardized rubric 
it doesn't have to be great. Um, I think like people in the assessment industry would argue, but like doing the the basics of like, did this person spell most of the words correctly in their presentation? Like how eloquently can they communicate for a sales role? Um, how fast do they move in a developer role? Like, do they, can they sort of like learn new things quickly? Um, all of those points get hit on by spending like half a day uh, having somebody do an assessment asynchronously and then like present it for 30 minutes and you pay them a couple hundred bucks or whatever consulting rate feels fair. Um, and, and for us, I think it, it across many companies now, and we do this for our own team at X when we're hiring, um, we did it at Indeed, we did it at Alaska, at Interviewed. It's like, it just builds like a very um, high quality team. I'm obviously biased, but I also think that there's some, uh, there's this like cultural cohesion that you get, which is like, we've all done this together. We, we like the developers no longer feel that the salespeople are idiots because they were hired on like a hope and a prayer. And the developer had to do some like five hour nightmare hacker rank assessment to get hired. Like it's sort of like levels the playing field. Um, I think it shows that we respect every role, regardless of whether that person, you know, requires 10 years of experience or zero years of experience. Um, and so I think it's been a, a very simple thing and it's like a super easy thing to recreate within basically any company. I could nerd out on, uh, talent and hiring for, for a long time as I think you could, um, I'll maybe ju just drop one more question on the topic and then, uh, have some others on some different topics I wanted to get to, um, zooming out, uh, and you kind of already brushed up against one of these opportunities, but what are some of the bigger opportunities you see within labor marketplace hiring, uh, type sector? And maybe you could give one on the supply side and one on the, the demand side. Um, but, uh, I think this, this market is still so ripe with, with opportunity. Um, and I'm sure you've written down hundreds of ideas over the course of the last few years. So curious to hear the, uh, what, what the best ones might be. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the sort of cynical take uh, is that nobody has fixed anything in 15 years. <laughs> I mean, like, uh, I, I always tell this to founders, like to my peers, like, um, yes, I, I created uh, two, I think, very valuable companies in, in the space, both in terms of like, um, you know, what we got paid for the company, but also just like hopefully like value back to users and to the acquirer and to the universe as a whole of like helping make job search easier. But I mean, if you think about like how many people, you know, at least over the next couple of years will like realistically find their job on X, you know, assessments of everything that Indeed is working on is one, I think, critical, but one of like 10 top priorities that they're working on as a company. Um, and so if you zoom out and you go, um, in 20, let's just say like 20 to, you know, 2010, uh, about 15 years ago, like how were people finding jobs? They were finding jobs through Indeed and LinkedIn. How are they finding jobs today? They're finding jobs through Indeed and LinkedIn. And hilariously, like Craigslist is still one of the leaders in uh, shift-based work. And so there's, it's just like, it's very hard to um, change behavior in this space. And, and I think, you know, education, a lot of other kind of related adjacent sectors are very similar. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's sort of like the cynical view is like, um, when people are like, oh, yeah, there's a lot of work to be done. It's like, no, 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 all of the work is left to be done. We don't have like, we truly do not have our industries, like Tesla, like we do not have the super hyper expensive electric car 
that has now become like the cheapest kind of like model three, like baseline entry level car. And the model Y is like now the most sold, you know, car in America. Like we don't have that in, in, uh, in anything related to hiring, at least in the U S in, in certain other markets, people have made, I, I think more, um, like bigger strides. And of course there have been like a number of companies, like dozens and dozens and dozens of great companies who have been acquired by an Indeed or a LinkedIn or a WellFound or, you know, these small companies that have merged and like sold to private equity, like the greenhouses and, and levers and stuff of the world. Um, but it's like, yeah, like Oracle Taleo is still hyper dom dominant on the applicant tracking system side. You're finding jobs through Indeed. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I'm 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 convinced that like there's there's something that looks radically different, and that's one of my big hopes for X is that like we have the audience, we now have the jobs. Like we we actually have, I, I think, a real shot over like a five or ten year timeline to shift like just the means and how people find meaningful work. Um, so I, I think in terms of like the big opportunities, probably the the industries that have been disrupted the most tend to be um, these like vertical, like highly verticalized uh, labor marketplaces where, um, and many of them are like hyper successful, right? So if you look at the way that like oil and gas workers found work, um, it was through Indeed. Uh, and, and now it's through a lot of different platforms. If you look at how like tech people were finding jobs, it was through LinkedIn. And now that's happening across WellFound and Dover and Otta and like mm -hmm. this sort of like long tail of things, how people find like internships has been sort of segmented, how they find healthcare jobs has been segmented into like clipboard health and a million competitors there. Um, and so there's been meaningful work there. And it's possible that just like some of these tactics end up working out and that 20 years from now, those individual like vertical labor marketplaces displace an Indeed or a LinkedIn. Uh, so back to your question, I mean, I'm biased, but the funny thing is, if you look at the TAM for hiring, like just call it like third party hiring just in the US because I don't know other markets that well. Um, it's something like, depending on who you believe, it's somewhere around like 160 or $180 billion a year is spent on like third party recruiting and hiring services in America. Um, LinkedIn's doing 15 billion, Indeed is doing 10 billion, ZipRecruiter's doing a billion. Monster, Dice, WellFound, that entire stack of companies that I just listed are mainly doing like low millions to like mid tens of millions in revenue. So it's like crazy long tail. Um, so if you add all that up, like maybe you get to like 28, 30 million dollars coming from online anything, which means that again, the numbers vary a lot because you're talking about like tens of billions of dollars difference, but there's something like 130 to $150 billion that is still spent on Randstad, ADECO, like traditional third-party staffing and recruiting firms that Wild. today comprise of like hundreds of thousands of employees who like drive into an office and they get on the phone and they manually cold call candidates to be like, hey, can you come into the warehouse on Thursday? Like the company is willing to pay you $17 and then we add a 40% margin to that and we build a company at $30 per hour. And that's like the entire hiring economy today. So it gets more depressing than like, oh yeah, people still use LinkedIn. Haha, <laughs> that's a joke. It's like, no, no, no. Like a meaningful part of all of the jobs in America are still staffed by third-party staffing companies that employ hundreds of thousands of people and just add like margin to it. Like fucking nuts. Wow.
So that's that to me, like all of the, I, I mean, we could get into it separately, but I, I think if I was an entrepreneur and I was like, where, where are the opportunities? I think it's, inc it's going to be incredibly hard to compete with ZipRecruiter or X or Google or Meta, or, you know, they all have their own like job efforts. Um, and certainly with like a LinkedIn or Indeed, um, can you go compete meaningfully with like a 500 person regional medical staffing company in Virginia? Like, fuck yeah, you can. <laughs> it's like very easy to get, very easy to get hospitals interested in that. Um, the amount that's tied up in just like staffing margins is super depressing. And so I, I think if you zoom out and you look at the companies, um, uh, that I'm super excited about in hiring, it's companies like Deal, um, where it's not like a hiring company, like much more in sort of like the HR payroll space. But if you look at what's actually happening with Deal and Remote.com and Oyster and like the million competitors there, um, that's actually legitimately exciting is you go from a model where, you know, Randstad or some big staffing company makes 40 to 60% basically on the back of, of like workers, um, to where like a software company is taking $500 per worker per month. Like you've, you've like crunched the margins from like $7,000 per month per worker to like $500. And now you actually have platforms where like all of these workers are centrally getting paid, where they are centrally um, uh, like findable and searchable. Like you can sort of like move them around to different companies and still maintain like the same level of like work sponsorship and, and compliance and taxes and like all these things. Um, so like thinking about deal and remote and oyster and these these sort of like third party payroll companies almost as like emerging platforms in the space, I think is super interesting. And then I, and then I think just like anything that is um, in any way like automated or AI related to like fixing the actual role of a recruiter, like there's so many ways that you could go there from like sourcing to actually getting on the phone. 50 times a week with candidates and having the exact same script over and over and over. Like there's just so many ideas there. I would be spending all of my time thinking about staffing, thinking about traditional recruiting um, and ways to not necessarily like displace those recruiters, but I think selling solutions like from a B2B perspective around how to make those recruiters lives easier with like a 10 year horizon of displacing a bunch of recruiters, I think is like a, a very, you know, there's like dozens of valuable companies that will be built in, in that in that part of the stack. Related to this topic of identifying problems to solve, I was listening to your episode with Sean on my first million. Uh, and I think you said either as you were starting last year or before it, you had a list of like a couple hundred ideas that you had written down over the course mm -hmm. of years that you were considering working on, you were evaluating. Do you have a kind of like a, a problem analysis and discovery process, like a, a codified approach to this or a set of heuristics that you use when trying to uh, quantify or evaluate a problem you're, you're thinking about working on? Yeah, I, I mean, our, our approach when we started Lasky was Daniel, who's my co-founder, and I listed out every idea. No idea was too dumb. Uh, there were some really dumb ideas there, but no idea was too dumb. Uh, and we just put it in a, in a Google spreadsheet. Um, and then we actually, uh, what's funny about this question is we actually had like a very rigid criteria. Um, there's, there's probably some, uh, analysis that's, that's worth doing like a postmortem of sorts, which is like, is this criteria right? But I can tell you the criteria for Lasky, which will like change for like how I 
evaluate companies in the future, either as things that I like invest in or advise or potentially start. Um, so our criteria for Lasky was we listed every idea um, and then we added four columns to the spreadsheet. Um, and sorry, we actually like cloned, this is going to get in the weeds, but we cloned the That's spreadsheet. Fine. So it's like list every idea. You clone the spreadsheet. You get ideas, Chris, ideas, Daniel. Independently, without looking at a centralized spreadsheet, we added four columns to this list of ideas, which was, uh, I should have looked this up before, but I think I'm going to remember them. That's okay. It was uh, market size, excitement, time to first dollar, and uh, do we actually have the means of building something here? So this was a super valuable exercise. because, And then what we did is we just ranked every idea across those four criteria, a one to a five. So I'll give you, I'll give you an example like of that. one that didn't make the cut, which was infrastructure. Um, Daniel and I were and still are obsessed with American infrastructure. Um, it costs something like $15 million. I think that's right. Maybe it's 1.5 million. It's like a shitload of money to pave a single mile of road in the US on average. So it's like, okay, massive TAM. Like if you look at like asphalt companies as just like the starting point of infrastructure, like massive TAMs, so that's like a five. Excitement, like fuck yeah. Do I want to run like an asphalt <laughs> company? Yeah, five for me. Time to first dollar, one. Like I I don't even know, you know, like <laughs> we're not selling like gumroad courses here. We're trying to like fix American infrastructure. Like that's going to be like a zero or a one. Um, and then like, do we actually have ideas to chip away at this? I think it was like a three. It was like, we could start with a more hardware angle. We could start with a software angle. So that in aggregate out of 20 possible points gets like a 13 or a 14. Um, there, there, there ended up being certain things like in recruiting where it was like, this is a massive industry. There's almost $200 billion in spend. We've literally built a recruiting company before. I think we could get excited about it. I think we get customers super fast. Like that ends up with like a 19 out of 20. So again, I think the exercise is worth is worth like revisiting probably. And and I think for every person it's different. Like they the the thing that is most surprising to people when I tell them this is the time to first dollar, which Daniel and I are obsessed with. And like anything I do, we have to be able to make money before we have a product. Like it's just a prerequisite. I don't know what it is about me, but like I just I can't get excited about like going heads down and building something for six or nine or twelve months. So that just like it excludes a ton of industries for me. Yeah. Like I I will I don't think I'll ever be the guy who like creates the next SpaceX, and that's totally okay because like I just don't have the temperament to, you know, spend years and years and years investing in the thing and then hoping that it works. Like I have to see immediate gratification and like people using a thing for free gives me very little gratification. Like there has to be like dollars attached to it usually. Um, and so that's, that was really our, our formula. But I, but I think the exercise is interesting, especially if you're working with like co-founders or a co-founder, um, because there were, the, it also, what it does is if you, if you blend the ratings, it also meant that we didn't work on stuff that like Daniel was super excited about, but I wasn't excited about or vice versa. So like, um, and, and then we didn't overcomplicate it. Like it wasn't meant to be this like hyper rigorous exercise. And we also gave ourselves the freedom to say, look, if we look at this list and then we stack rank it and like we hate the ideas at the top, we like, <laughs> we're not going to like force ourselves to go spend five years right. building those. Um, and so that was, that was it. Um, I think that there's probably some, 
um, like minor modifications that I would, I would make there, but that was it for, for Lasky. And I, and I think it sort of distilled the like 80, 20 of how do you go from like a massive list of to do's or a massive list of ideas to like the idea that you want to spend, you know, five years working on. I think time, time to first dollar was the one that stood out to me the most yep. as like unique when I've seen these kind kinds of formulas. So one fourth of that equation was, uh, and I don't know if there was waiting there within, but was excitement. There was not. We we, we okay. weren't that sophisticated. After spending like five years in the assessment space, I was tired of giving <laughs> like item item level you know weights to things. So yeah, right. Okay. So, uh, but but one fourth of it then was excitement, which I think when you think of kind of the classic like. Uh, romanticized idea of starting a Silicon Valley start startup. It's like, oh, I was just incredibly passionate about this idea. Um, how much does passion really play a role in terms of the ideas you, you want to focus on? And do you think about passion from the perspective of like sector or problem or uh, or or those skill sets that you get to apply regardless of what it, what sector or problem you're working on? Like for example, sales or growth. It's a great thought exercise. I mean, I think um, I think passion uh, maybe one of the uh, on that note. I think one of the um, alterations that I would make would be passion for the space and the type of users that you're serving and the type of companies that you're selling to a lot more so than passion on the individual idea, because mm. both interviewed and Blasky had not like significant pivots, but multiple pivots in the first year. And I think it's very rare that a company picks a thing and they just hit it out of the park. Like right. people, people always, act, I think actually founders discount ideas a lot. Like there are a lot of just bad ideas that you can go work on. And I think one of the things that's awesome about great investors and good advisors and like people like YC is they very much encourage pivoting. Like the, the best thing that you can do if you're thinking about starting a company is fill out the YC application. Um, because what I've found is like when I recommend that to people who want to start a company, like 75% of the time they don't even do it. And it's like building a company is many, many, many years of like 70 hour work week. So if you can't spend four hours to fill out like a six page document and and sort of address like, who are you selling to? How do you plan to price it? How do you plan to bring this to market? Like every investor is gonna ask you those questions. Every good employee that you hire is gonna ask you those questions. You have to like have a thesis on how you bring this to customers. But the most, like one of the more valuable pieces of the YC application is great. You've just spent four hours answering this. Like, what are your other ideas? Because we know that this idea probably sucks. Like, mm -hmm. it, it's it's like founders get so offended by this idea. Um, like, I've talked to people that run venture studios, and it's the same thing. Like, a lot of times they'll hire somebody like me to like come in and like basically be like an EIR in term like a, at a VC firm or at a venture studio. And I come in and it's like, guys, I've sold two HR tech companies. I know everything about recruiting. I've got this amazing recruiting idea. And they're just like, yeah, but it sucks because of X, Y, Z. Like you should go do this recruiting idea. And that happens all the time, even with super experienced people. Um, and so I think on your question, which is a great way of framing it, I, I think from living through this, both as an employee, but also as um, a founder is um, just loving the space is, is really interesting. Like um, I, love, I love marketplaces as like a business model, um, even though they're hard. I love recruiting. I love real estate. So there's just like a lot of things within there, like the dynamics of 
third-party agents that do something on someone's behalf, like that central idea is fascinating. So if you look at um, attachment to the business model, like I would be, I would be not a good person to sell like physical consumer goods. I have all these friends that run like D to C companies and they're shipping out like merchandise from their e-commerce store and they love it. And they talk about it on Twitter all day long. And I'm like, that sounds like a fucking nightmare. Just like dealing with inventory. And I'm like, to some people, marketplaces sounds like a nightmare or selling into real estate agents sounds like a nightmare. So I think it's like that passion of like, what's the thing that I uniquely enjoy about like all the different types of businesses that I could start and across all these different industries. Um, Like I'm just not like a big car guy. So I don't think I would ever start like a car marketplace. So that's like helpful to call out. But within like a real estate idea, Okay, we're going to sell, um, you know, one eighth fractional, you know, luxury homes to really rich buyers like Picasso did, right? A bunch of like ex Zillow people went off and created that. Mm-hmm. Oh, like the economy slaps you in the face. Like, what are you going to do now? Like, you still love real estate, but like that shit probably isn't going to work. So like, what do you, what do you do? Like, he, you've attracted like lots of real estate agents to this idea. You have a bunch of really rich people. Like, are there ideas you can pivot around in and just like last another year and last another two years? And the same thing happened in recruiting. Like we started with a bunch of recruiting ideas. The way that the market in recruiting changed from 2020 to 2023 was like fundamental. There was this like complete upending of the market in the time that we ran Lasky from hiring is every CEO's number one problem to solve when we started the company. And when we exited to X, it was like how to do layoffs eloquently was like every founder's number one problem. Like the entire market had shifted. Um, And so it's like, how do you still run a company that you give a shit about in that space? And I think you have to be attracted to like the business model or like some variant of like the type of business. Are you selling a physical good? Are you building hardware? Are you doing software? Is it marketplace? Um, That is actually super important. And then uh, because like the exact way that you monetize that, who your exact buyer is going to be, the way that you talk about the problem will probably change like six or eight times in the first year so critical and and overlooked i even i catch myself uh even after having done a startup for a year uh not thinking in that way and getting kind of married to the idea whether or not i'd be obsessed with it for for seven years but like chances are you're not going to be working specific idea for seven years um well you you've been super generous with your time i always close with the same final question um which i intentionally didn't didn't provide in the sample questions to you uh which is to turn around on you, what's one question you'd leave me and listeners with whether to think about or act on? Um, I, I would ask, are you working on something that is valuable to the world? I think it's a very good question. And I think one of the things that working for Elon has inspired me to do is really question like not only what I do for work in a day, but how I think about like personal life. Like you, you meet some of these people that just have outsized ambitions, which like you don't have to be, you don't even have to like Elon to sort of recognize like there is value, I think, in, in constantly assessing, like especially if you are interested in entrepreneurship, if you're interested in like scaling companies, whether that's as an employee or as a founder or as an investor, um, like, are you fast forward? Life is short. Like, are you going to put like some interesting dent on the universe? And that could happen in a lot of ways from like 
possibly having kids to not having kids for very specific reasons so that you can like focus more on your life's mission. Um, but it's something I think that's like my like midlife crisis question that I've been asking myself a lot, which is I think often underlooked like people in tech just do things because total comp is high or because like they do get attracted to the mission um, or because like some flashy investors on the cap table or something. But um, taking a step back, like uh, those of us who are fortunate to have careers in technology, there's still a lot of shit that needs to get built. Um, and so just really critically looking at every year of your life in terms of like, uh, am I sort of like moving the world in the right direction? Uh, in like a tiny, like tiny way, even I, I think is a, is a good uh, thing to think about. And it's something that I never really thought about, but I think in the last year I've spent a lot of time thinking about that. Um, yeah. I can only imagine working with Elon for, for months would have that effect. And my uh, earlier question about whether you, you could see a career in content creation sounds silly in hindsight. So I'm excited to see uh, if, and when you do leave X, what that next massive swing will be. Yeah, for sure. Chris, thank you so much. This has been a blast. Um, yeah, it's been awesome. Thanks for having me.